that your will would be done. Asking, Lord, that you would accomplish your purposes as we humble ourselves before your word. Asking, Lord, that our hearts would be tender to receive the guidance that you have for us. And, Lord, asking that you would change us and mold us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, allow me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, as the one, Lord, that you've given the privilege to open your word this morning to be your vessel and that you would accomplish your purposes, Lord, through this passage, uh, according to your will. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. The summer between my junior and senior year in college, my friend and I took a trip to England. Of course, I grew up there, but I was really young when I was and one of the things we wanted to do was go to, you know, go to London and see the, the heart of London. We enjoyed it very, very much. And one of the things, of course, as tourists, that we wanted to do is we wanted to see London Bridge. You know, London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down. My fair lady, you may have grown up with that nursery rhyme. Maybe the younger generation has no idea what I'm talking about. But we wanted to see it. And so, um, so we looked all over the place. Um, so we looked all over the place. place. And we could we not find London Bridge. Of course, the assumption is that Tower Bridge is London Bridge, if you've ever been to London before. It's that quintessential looking bridge, right, that you think of when you think of England and London in particular. And there, so we were looking for a bridge like that. We knew that Tower Bridge wasn't London Bridge. And so we walked around for about two hours trying to figure out where in the world is London Bridge. And we found ourselves across on the river uh, on this kind of really modern kind of a new bridge looking down the river at Tower Bridge, just kind of dejected like we spent all this time. And where is London Bridge? And so I looked and there was a guy walking across the bridge and he was, he was in a, a suit, pr presumably a businessman. I think the financial district is around there somewhere. And he's walking pretty fast. And I said, sir, sir, can I ask you a question? Do you know the way to London Bridge? And he kind of looked at us with that smirk that says, you bunch of tourists. And he said, you're standing on it. We were looking for what we perceived to be London Bridge. And of course, he laughed with us. This is a typical thing that tourists actually do. They go there trying to find it when he told us that actually London Bridge is now in Arizona. Um, it was dismantled, I think, in what, uh, April 18th, 1968 for $2.4 million and transferred to Lake Hav Havasu City in Arizona and construction began in 1791. We were wanting to be shown the way. Arizona was a long way from there. I had a missionary friend when I was uh, pastoring in, um, in Buffalo, New York. His name, his name was Dave Van Etten. And when people would ask him, hey, Dave, do you know the way to Rich Stadium, which is where the Bills played, or to Grace Baptist Church, or to the local city mission? His response would have this kind of theme. And this is kind of typical of what it would be. Drive for about five miles down Union Road until you get to the McDonald's. Then after about three bucks, turn left at Burger King, then about a mile down the road, you're going to pass Taco Bell, and at the next light, 
you want to turn right. You'll see a Dunkin' Donuts about a block down the road, and you want to turn left just after that Dunkin' Donuts and right before you get to Little Caesars. You can't miss it. And if you drive as far as Starbucks, you've gone too long. But you know what? There's a U-turn down by Wendy's. We understood where he spent a lot of his time. You understand that, right? Now, friends, people ask about the way to certain places, and we find in this particular uh, this, this record, the book of Acts, we have this presence of what is called the way. We first found it in chapter 9, verse 2, when Saul of Tarsus was there persecuting the Jews, in particular those who were part of the way. It came up again in chapter 19, verse 9, to describe those who had believed in the apostles' message as he reasoned in the synagogue. It shows up here again in verse 23 and will be repeated in chapter 22 and 24. So who or what are the way? Well, the way describes all those who have embraced the witness of the apostles. In other words, they've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are now on their journey to live their lives for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, we can only presume that the early followers of Christ refer to themselves as the way because of Jesus' statement in John chapter 14, verse 6. We find the statement that he made. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 18, 26, Aquila and Priscilla explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. Peter refers to Christianity in 2 Peter 2, 2 as the way of truth. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' broken body is the new and living way for us to enter into the most holy place. So this, this idea of the way is actually who we are. We are the way, so to speak, from the book of Acts. We are called Christians now, but early on, they were called the way. And Rome considered the way as a sect, a subset of Judaism. When they looked at them, they saw them as Jews, but kind of this subset of Judaism. So the spread of the, the gospel was making inroads in many places around the Mediterranean, and in many cities and places in particular now, we find it making inroads into the city of Ephesus. We've seen that the past couple of times as we've gathered together. And what Dr. Luke wants us to see as we come to this particular text, as he continues the slideshow of the events that are taking place in Ephesus to this Greek follower by the name of Theophilus, is that the true gospel will naturally confront the status quo. The true gospel will naturally confront the status quo. When you join the way and you begin to live out and, sp and, and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will find that the gospel you preach, the gospel you live, the gospel you hold dear will naturally and eventually bump into the culture around you. And some will listen and believe. But there will always be those who are challenged by it, who will resist it, and are ultimately offended by it. So the true gospel will naturally confront or challenge the status quo. It'll confront the status quo of your marriage, of your family, of the relationship you have with your friends and with your neighbors. It will confront the, the, the relationships at work with your coworkers, those that maybe are part of the clubs that you're a part of. 
It will challenge even people in your church. This is what the gospel does. It isn't because the gospel is abusive, but because the gospel challenges a way of life, a, the cultural values, the, 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 the society's norms, their standards. Now let's just think a little bit about the setting of what's going on here. We find it in verse 21 and following because Paul has set his heart toward Rome. And for the rest of Acts, we'll see Paul on that journey. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having set, sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this is a setting. Paul is anticipating going to Jerusalem, but ultimately he's going to Rome. And this will take us to the end of the book of Acts. The structure of our passage is kind of long, but it really breaks down into three sections. You have a speech made by Demetrius. You have uh, the assembling of a mob. And then you have a speech by an unnamed town clerk. That's really what we have here. Three sections that God is going to use to teach us that the true gospel will naturally confront the status quo of culture. And friends, we need to see this, and we need to wrestle with what's happening here. So first of all, I want us to see gospel accusation, verses 21 through 28. And I want you to notice Luke's unique turn of phrase. About that time, there arose no little disturbance. Did you catch that? We've read that a number of times um, already in the book of Acts. Acts 12, 18, we're told that there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. He had gotten out of jail. They didn't know where he was. No little disturbance. Acts chapter 14, verse 28, they remained uh, no little time with the disciples. In other words, they spent a long time with the disciples, right? And here in Acts 19, 23 and 24, it's used twice. No little disturbance, and there was no little business. There was no little crowd at the Warriors game. There was no little food at the church potluck table. There was no little sermon Pastor Rob was preaching on Sunday, especially with the hour extra sleep. So what Luke is showing us is that this disturbance that takes place is no small thing. It was a significant disturbance about the way. Something about the way was causing trouble in society. And a man by the name of Demetrius is going to bring attention to it. So we read in verse 24 that a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, we're told, who made silver shrines for Artemis, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So he gathers these other craftsmen, these other merchants, these other people that are in the same kind of uh, sphere of work with him. These are people that also produced articles and artifacts for the temple or for the worship of Artemis. They were kind of like the United Temple metal workers of Ephesus. They were the local union, so to speak. And they were the ones who built shrines and statues and amulets and jewelry. And he speaks to them and he riles them up. Just notice what he says. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul, he persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, 
that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, what disturbs Demetrius is what Paul is saying, that gods made with hands are not gods. And if that's true, then Paul's message and his followers are all a threat to us. In what way are they a threat? Well, there's three things that really come out as he speaks. They are a threat, first of all, to our wealth. We will be ruined. If everyone believes that God, God's made with hands, notice little g, God's made with hands are not God's, then they will not be buying our little trinkets, our little statues, our little whatever they may be to be used in worship of um, Artemis. They are a threat to our trade because if we are the ones that are making these things and we are now kind of put in bad light for making these gods, then even those who are involved in this trade will lose their reputation. Who will want to hire someone that used to do that for their living? And they are a threat to our worship. We will lose even our religion. Notice what it says. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Let me ask you a question. If Artemis is so great, why are they worried that she'll be counted as nothing? And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Well, if she's magnificent, she's magnificent. Who do, who do all this, sorry, we do all this, he's saying, because of the magnificence of Artemis and we worship her, she is our God. She is the greatest. And friends, we have encountered similar arguments, haven't we? If the Oakland Raiders leave Oakland, it's going to have an impact on the city. If the A's, who are always talking about moving somewhere, leave the city. If the Warriors move out of Oakland, oh, okay, they already did it. What's going to happen? People are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be parking spots at BART because no one wants to go there anymore. Right? No more bobbleheads. No more, you know, number one little hand things that you have. No more waving of these little things that you take to a ball game. No more T-shirts. No more hats. No more hot dogs from the guy that's selling them on the overpass. No more food trucks, no more scalpers making money. The air will become depressed and empty, and homeless encampments will take their place. See, friends, these are real issues. These are real practical implications. And if you're working in a job that is challenged by what someone is saying, you're concerned about it. Why? Because you have a vested interest in what's going on. But isn't it interesting that one little sentence, God's made with hands are not God's, would be so offensive. <laughs> well, what is disturbing for the church? This is what's disturbing for the church, that the simple and basic teaching of the church is naturally an offense to those with vested interests. That when the gospel is preached, it will have an impact on society. But friends, we should not be surprised. Instead, we should be ready for this. 
Demetrius and company are not upset about some strange, radical, weird kind of, you know, outlier type teaching from the Bible. No, they're worried about something that comes out of Christianity that is Christianity 101. So are you surprised that society doesn't like some of the simple and basic beliefs of the Christian faith? I'm just going to list a few. I'll probably refer to them quite a few times here. But just to make a point, God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. That's offensive to you? Mm -hmm. Marriage is between a husband and a wife. Wow, how shocking. Christianity 101. Life begins at conception. It's not new news, friends. This is Christianity 101. Every person is responsible for his or her actions. Biblical truth. But when a person's or a group's vested interests are challenged and threatened, they will rise up and call your faith hateful, call you unloving, and even call you a bigot. Friends, Christianity 101 is naturally an offense to an unbelieving culture because it will confront and expose their sin. It will challenge and argue a change in living, and it will confront what they do with their money. And those who will not bow the knee to Christ do not want to conform to God's standard. They will tolerate it. You can believe what you want, for as long as you want. But if it affects me, now the game's changed. So to those who are simply saying, I believe what the Scriptures clearly teach, that life begins at conception, that marriage is between a man and a woman only, that there are only two genders, society will only tolerate you and your message so long. But remember, this is simple, basic Christianity. So if you want to change the culture you're living in, if you're letting the light of the gospel shine around you, if you affirm the basic teachings of Christianity, you must come to terms with the fact that some will watch and listen to the gospel you are professing and believe, while others will be challenged by the gospel to the point of offense. Not because of your manner in sharing the gospel or living out the gospel, although there can be an issue there, but because the gospel you hold dear threatens what they value, their very way of life. See, today, society sees gospel witness as a form of manipulation, as a form of brainwashing and a coercive conversion. And to some extent, they have history to point to. Because the big umbrella of the church has at times been coercive in its spread of the gospel. I mean, just a couple of illustrations. Well, you know, when the, the, the Catholic church went into South America, they didn't say, well, here's Jesus. If you want to believe in him, you can. No, they said, you're going to. They coerced conversions with the threat of punishment or even death. And then after the Reformation in Europe, there were all these religious massacres and wars that took place. So it's not that, you know, society is wrong in thinking there's some problem there. But listen, 
True biblical Christianity, although seeking to persuade, will not and should not ever coerce any kind of conversion. Because we know that a coerced conversion is not conversion. It doesn't match up with biblical theology at all. Instead, we must be faithful to speak the gospel, explain the gospel, and persuade about the urgency of responding to the gospel, and then point them to Christ. But God must be the one who is calling them. He must be the one who is drawing them to repentance. And we must step out of the way and let him deal with them. So friends, be ready for a barrage of false gospel accusations to continue to be leveled against Bible-believing Christians. But don't be surprised. <laughs> don't be surprised. They're not really angry at you. They're angry at Christ. They're angry at the God who breathed out his word, who gives us the instructions that we have. This is the world in which we live. It's the world that Paul was living in, and it's the same today. So we have these gospel, this gospel accusations. Moving on now to what I'm calling cultural confusion. So Demetrius rises up, raises up, or riles up this union guild and his words, uh, with his words, and his, they begin chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Passionate speech riles up crowds and riles them up to chant certain things. And chanting is a helpful tool, friends, to unify a crowd. And as a result, a mob mentality takes over, doesn't it? Now notice the key word that shapes this section of the text. It's the word confusion. Verse 29, the city was in confusion. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. A little side note, the word assembly is the word ecclesia, from which we get the word church, this gathering. So it's a little irony here. But they're gathered as a mob, but they are confused. In 1989, when the Washington Territory was ready for statehood, there was a proposal to call it Columbia, because of the mighty Columbia River. Legislators gathered together, and they rejected the idea in fear that the 42nd state would then be confused with the District of Columbia. So they stuck with their original choice and named it Washington. Confusion. Confusion, friends. Now the question is, what was the confusion in Ephesus about. And I want to suggest to you four things that come right out of this passage. First of all, confused about who's to blame. They drag two men into this great arena. Two men by the name of Gaius and Aristarchus. They're Macedonians. In other words, they're Greeks. They're not Jews. They are companions of Paul. Aha, that's the reason. They're companions of Paul. They're followers then of the way. And friends, a mob mentality needs someone to blame. They need a scapegoat. They need someone to be angry at. And these two men suit the bill. And of course, Paul sees what's happening, and he wants to, to get in there. But, but notice, rather than you can't get the leader, you're always going to get someone else. right? But Paul's wanting to get in here. We find that in the text here. But we're told here that the disciples 
And even the Asiarchs urged his restraint. He's like, oh, disciples, I can understand that. But who are these Asiarchs? Well, they are the rulers that oversee the shrines for the temple of Artemis. And notice what the text says. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs who were, what? Friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into theater. So even those who were not part of the way, even those who were working for this great temple of Artemis and her shrines were counseling Paul not to jump in because they knew that if he did, it would not be good. This was no small gathering, and it was no small mob. It was no small disturbance. Now, they were confused about who's to blame. Secondly, they're confused about the reason for the assembly. Did you catch that? We're told that some cried out one thing, some another. Most of them, what? Did not know why they had come together. That should be a little indication to you of some clarity as to what happens when a mob begins to form. Over the past 10 years or so, we've experienced a number of gatherings that turned into riots for different reasons. Some were related to sports. Remember when the Giants won in 2010? Oh, the happy fans tore up the city, lit fires, broke windows. 2014, they did it all again. Happy San Franciscans. Some were related to politics. If you remember when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, people took to the streets, businesses were looted, and people were injured. Some are related to social justice, where cities were trashed and violence erupted. And friends, when marches and protests turn into mob mentality, rioting is just around the corner. Riots bring out the worst in people, don't they? Vandalism, theft, chaos, sexual abuse, violence. Why? Because the flesh is, re is released from the restraints of the law. Right? Mob mentality, riot mentality is lawless. The law that rules when there's a riot, when there's a mob, is the rule of the mob. And quite frankly, when people are arrested for things that have happened when there is a riot, they're often excused because of the phenomenon of being caught up in a riot, which you have to scratch your head and say, so if I'm going to murder someone, I'm getting caught up in the murder. Does that excuse me from being caught up? It's the illogical kind of phenomenon that happens in our culture. But riots also bring out the worst people, don't they? People who really don't care about the reason for the riot, but are there to take advantage of it. Right? The reason is irrelevant. It's an opportunity for personal gain. That's why you know, Nike stores were looted. Right? Doesn't matter what the issue is. Doesn't matter where you stand on the issue. When it gets to that place, people are no longer caring about the issue. They're thinking about a pair of Nikes. And people literally going in the store, making sure they have the right size, and then coming out with a stack of them. Lawlessness. And friends, on this day in Ephesus, as is so often the case, there is great confusion. 
the point that the people really didn't know what was going on and why. Third, confused about who has the right to speak. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, standing in this great arena, motions with his hand. In other words, I'm about to say something. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Alexander here is royally canceled by the crowd. He was not allowed to speak. They had no idea what he was going to say, but they kind of put their, you know, their dots together and came up to the conclusion, oh, he must be speaking for the way. Now, since he's making a defense about what? Well, the way the story unfolds and the way Luke is writing this, it would appear that the Jews did not want to be associated with this new movement called the way that was causing offense. So likely, Alexander was going to get up and say, hey, just want you to know, we Jews, we're not with these guys here. No possibility for him to speak. He was canceled. He had no right to speak. They're confused about also how they should respond. Notice, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. All right? I've been to some baseball games. Let's go, Oakland. <clears throat> no, let it stop. Please, let it stop. All right, let's go, Warriors. Black Lives Matters. Let's go, Brandon. USA, USA, USA. What, what is all that? Well, oftentimes, it's the natural phenomenon that takes place that if your arguments don't work, then you must resort to drowning out the free speech of others with noise. Don't let him speak. It's another form of la 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 la. I can't hear you. We don't want to talk. We've already determined what is true. We don't want to hear from you, so we're just going to drown you out. This is all that's happening here. You can summarize the mob assembly with four words: they were enraged. Secondly, they were confused. They were irrational, right? We're going to lose our jobs. Artemis is great. <laughs> you can't have both of them. If Artemis is great, you're not going to lose your job. If you're going to lose your job, well, maybe Artemis isn't so great, right? It's just illogical. Stop thinking. And the last one, of course, it was political. This is what happens. All of this because Paul said, God's made with hands are not God's. Just think about that. God's hands, or sorry, God's hands. God's made with hands are not God's. It's, it's a very simple, basic truth that even the Jews understood. And yet, it created this mob mentality. Now, friends, the same happens when Christians repeat basic Christian truths in today's context, right? The ending of life, of an innocent child in the womb is murder. It's a belief, it is a conviction, and an argument that is rooted in the plain teaching of Scripture. You don't have to do some 
some gymnastics to come to that conclusion. It's just there. Or God created Adam and Eve. He created man in his image, both male and female. It's a belief. It's a conviction. It's an argument that is rooted in the plain teaching of Scripture. But secular society, that means a society that doesn't want God in the picture, wants to rewrite the history books. They want to confuse people by painting Christians and Christianity in a bad light. They don't want to acknowledge the role of faithful Christians who have labored through the years for the sake of ordinary people. Let me explain, just to give you some examples. The abolition of slavery. Do you guys know the name William Wilberforce? Christian man, because of his Christian convictions, labored for years against the vested interests of people who owned slaves, who were making money from slaves, and he lobbied, and he lobbied, and he convinced, and he convinced. But it was all because of his Christian ethic. Lord Shaftesbury, you may or may not know who he is, but in England, he was the one that fought for the child labor laws that for years, children as young as four were going down into the mines to work or laboring in the fields or women who were put under those same circumstances. And he lobbied and he lobbied. And again, those with vested interests would not agree with him, fought against him, mocked him, scorned him, ridiculed him. But he kept on plugging away. Why? Because of his Christian ethic. And the reason, ladies, that you are able to go to work and have decent jobs that people are complaining about today is because there was a Christian man in England by the name of Lord Shaftesbury that paved the way for that. The liberation of women. See, a lot of people don't realize that when Christianity came into existence, the, the context of women in, the, in those cultures was not good. They were considered a low part of society. In fact, more often considered as property. But with Christianity, they were elevated. They were lifted up as equals. They gathered together in the church with everyone else. But see, secular society doesn't want to remember that. They don't want to acknowledge that. Education for all. Christians behind that. The establishing of hospitals and orphanages and rehab centers. Now thinking a little bit more from a missionary perspective, in particular in India, the ending of the practice of sati, where Indian uh, wives, when their husband died, they were kind of, in a sense, forced to throw themselves on the pyre. They were expected to do that. And the Christians came and said, whoa, can't do that. Her life is sacred. And friends, the true gospel will naturally challenge the status quo. So be ready. Be wise. Don't get sucked into the vortex of mob rule. Don't respond in kind. Rather, endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Now, third, I'm calling this legal vindication. This has been a sub-theme through the book of Acts. Now, we began in verse 20 where we, we heard just the wonderful fruit of the ministry of the Word of God, how it was just continuing to, to grow and increase. That's a theme through the book of Acts. The spread of the witness of the gospel you know, through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth is a theme in the book of Acts. But one of the sub-themes in the book of Acts is this idea of Christians being vindicated. And that's what we have here in this section. In Acts 4, 
Peter and John were released from prison before the Jews, and they were commanded not to speak. And if you remember, this is the response that they gave. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. They didn't just come up with a story. They're coming up with eyewitness testimony. I'm not coming up with. They're sharing eyewitness testimony. It's what they saw. You can't deny what we saw. You can't deny what we, what we, we know is true. It was a true witness, not some manufactured story. Acts 5, there's a very similar account of Jews being enraged and wanting to kill Peter and the apostles, but Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a member of the council and is respected by all, the, uh, all those around him, defends and vindicates Peter and the followers of Christ. Continue on in the book of Acts. Acts 7, Stephen preaches and the people are enraged and grind their teeth. And as they're getting their stones to stone him, he looks up into heaven and, and, and you can see by his countenance the joy and the longing he has for Christ. And there is a, there's a vindication that comes in that moment from heaven for his faithfulness. Again, for us who are reading, we see God at work in vindicating his servants. Acts 16, Paul and Silas go to jail, but they are cast, uh, where they, because they cast out a demon, and the person who owned the girl in which the demon was, they were making money off her, now that, that is gone. And while they're praying in the jail, and the other people, prisoners there, are listening to them pray and listening to them sing, there's an earthquake, the foundations are shaken, miraculously the doors are all opened up, and also the shackles are unfastened, and that jailer and his household are saved as a result of that encounter. But they remained in prison. And when the magistrates sent word that they could leave, Paul said to them, oh, no, you don't. This is a paraphrase, okay? Oh, no, you don't. You're going to come and walk out with us publicly for all to see the injustice of our imprisonment. You see, that's vindication. So just over and over and over again, you see, Christians are vindicated. They are not committing a crime. They're not doing anything illegal. They're simply testifying of the truth of Jesus Christ. But when we testify the gospel, it will confront the status quo of society. And we continue in Acts. We'll see Paul before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and we'll be, they'll be vindicated again. So here in Acts 19, it will be a, an unnamed town clerk who stands up to defend Paul and the people of the way. Now, this is a kind of a surprising thing. You'd think that this person would be caught up with the mob and all this kind of stuff, but no. He comes out and he speaks. And he says four things, kind of summarized into four things. Number one, these, these people of the way, they pose no threat. Right? You can't deny the great Artemis and the story of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. She can handle herself. That's what he's saying. Now, he's a, he's a worshiper of Artemis. He believes in Artemis. So he's confident that she's, she's going to do her thing. They pose no threat. Secondly, they have not blasphemed our goddess. Verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. There's nothing they have done to be offensive to her in particular. Now, in our context, if, if, you know, if I were just to kind of blast away at, 
at, you know, at, uh, at Islam, that would be one thing. But if I was to say, uh, you know, look, Jesus Christ is the only way, I'm not attacking Islam directly. Paul was simply saying, right, idols made with hands are not gods. So there's nothing direct against her in particular. That's what he's saying. Third, they have done nothing illegal. If they've done something illegal, he says, go through the proper legal channels. Right? Settle it in the regular assembly. Fourth, be warned. Because the reality is, you, Demetrius, and all your followers, you are the ones who are going to be guilty of causing a riot. Notice what it says in this little section here, verse 40. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. You see how Luke just wants us to see, look, the gospel is going to have an impact and challenge the status quo of society. But you are doing nothing wrong as Christians in holding your Christian faith. Society may not like it. They may not like the implications of it. They may fight against it. But it's not illegal. So you're vindicated. Now, in this particular situation, Ephesus was a city under Roman rule, wasn't it? And the last thing Roman leadership wanted to deal with was an uprising of rebellion or some kind of riot taking place in the cities that were theirs. And if you know anything about the Romans and how they handled things, they didn't mess around. And if you happened to be around in a riot and you didn't mean to be there, maybe you just wanted to get some bread, but you got caught up in a riot, psh, you're going to be disciplined just like anyone else. They don't, they're not a respecter of persons in that context. This is the danger that this town clerk is alerting them to. These Christians, these people of the way, they're not doing anything illegal. But you, who've incited this mob, you are the ones who are right close to this mob rule. And I think they actually went over the line, but he was calming them down. That's why it says there, basically, to them, Demetrius and the rest of you, go home. There's nothing to see here. My friends, isn't it amazing that God uses individuals who are not his children to bring about his purposes and to protect his church when he sees fit? We see that throughout the scriptures, don't we? Let me just highlight a few. Joseph's Pharaoh, who granted the Israelites to settle in the land of Goshen. Of course, we know they multiplied and there was a new Pharaoh that came, but Joseph's Pharaoh was very gracious to them. Rahab, the harlot, who had helped the spies and Joshua overthrow the city of Jericho. King Ahasuerus, who defended Israel in the face of Haman, the Agagite. If you remember that story, the story of Esther. Cyrus, the Persian emperor, who issued a decree that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Those are just a few. But God uses pagan leaders, pagan individuals, unbelievers as the tools, as the vehicles to accomplish his own purposes. And friends, that should say something to us. He works out his sovereign will 
using pagans as well as Christians. And that's why we want to be sure to pray for those who are our government leaders, regardless of what their political positioning is. And I know for some of you that's hard, but we're called to do that. We pray for our senators and our representatives. We pray for our president and our vice president. We pray for our governor and our local government officials. They don't have to be Christians to gain your support. You respect the office and you believe that even though they may be shaking their fist at God in their beliefs, that God is accomplishing his sovereign will even through their own sinfulness. And sometimes they will do something that will bring glory to God in a way that will further his kingdom. Don't allow your Christianity to be caught up with your politics, friends. Often it's said by those who, whose vested interests are being challenged and are angry that Christianity 101 confronts their lifestyles and behaviors. This is the kind of things that they will say. That, that we need to change or that you as a Christian need to change your beliefs and practices because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Ever heard that argument before? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We're writing the history books right now and you want to make sure you're on the right side. You, you don't want to be perceived as the Hitlers of this world, right? That's nothing more than a manipulative threat rooted in the fear of man. Right? If you don't change your view and support our lifestyle, our choices, our belief systems, then this world will turn against you and you will be seen as evildoers and friends. Unfortunately, too many Christians cave in at this point. Why? Because we, we live in this kind of uh, you know, American nuclear family thing where we're saying we want to leave a positive legacy for those who come before us. Well, who's determining what's a good positive legacy? <laughs> They want to be remembered in good light. They want their lives to have a positive impact on society, and they fear being shamed in the public arena. But I ask you, friends, would you rather be on the right side of history, what society thinks about, or would you rather be on the right side of God in eternity? Would you rather fear man and bow down to his, uh, to, to, to godless society, or would you rather fear God and bow down to the one who created you, the world and everything in it? You see, according to the ideology of our secular world, Jesus stands on the wrong side of history. The God of the Bible who created them stands on the wrong side of history. Have fun with that when you stand at the judgment. Friends, the point is that Christians are vindicated for holding to the clear and simple teachings of Scripture. They are consistent with the church for over 2,000 years. They are consistent with the teachings of Jesus, which, of course, is there in the Scripture. And friends, our, our gospel vindication may not take place while we're alive, while we're on this earth, but one day when we stand as God's church before the throne of God, our struggles on this earth will seem small, and we will be vindicated for our faithfulness. And you see, Luke is wanting to show us through the book of Acts a number of things, but he wants to show us that even when we are faithful and you know, proclaiming the gospel in its various forms, and remember, Paul was doing ministry here for, for like almost three years. 
that the things that are being said that are just Christianity 101, some are going to receive them, some are going to believe, but there are going to be those who are offended by it. So don't be surprised. Be ready for that. Anticipate it. Be wise. Don't get sucked into all the emotions and the arguments that take place. And also be looking to, to Jesus, who is sovereignly controlling it all, who knows what he's doing. Now, I want to finish here with just five statements, five very brief statements that I think we can say flow out of this text. The first one really flows out of the greater context, and that is the, the, from the book of Luke to the book of Acts, because if we read Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, what we find is that Jesus wants us to be certain. Right? This is what Luke says to, to, the, to, the, to the recipient of not only Luke, but also the book of Acts. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right? So Luke is laying out for us the certainty of the gospel. He's laying out for us the certainty of the power of the Holy Spirit to work in people's life. He's wanting to work out for us the certainty of the sovereign purposes of God that in the face of great opposition continues to thrive. Be certain that the gospel you hold dear is what the Lord desired for you and is presently at work in spite of maybe all the things that are around you. Secondly, Jesus wants us to be confident that the gospel is still at work. It penetrates hearts. It is changing people's beliefs and values. It is growing marriages and families and churches all over the world. It is Winning, we would say. You say, well, isn't society you know, kind of on a, on a decline? Okay, society may be on a decline, but God's church continues to be strong. Now, part of the problem is we see things very much through Western eyes. We see things through a America is first kind of mentality. Did you know that there are Christians in other countries? Did you know that there are churches in other countries that are very evangelistically minded? And did you know that they're sending missionaries from their countries to other countries? We're not the only ones doing it. And that they're being effective. And the gospel is going forward. And maybe our impact as Americans is waning, but that doesn't mean the church is waning. God is having his way. He's having his way in places like China, even with all the stuff that's going on. He's having his, place, his way in many places, friends. You may not see it but you trust it and you know it to be certain. And so he wants us to be confident. Certain, confident. Third, Jesus wants us to be careful. He doesn't want us to be rabble-rousers. It is way too easy to go the way of culture and be sucked into, the, into following their way of handling opposition. And friends, I want to warn you Anytime there's some kind of like political year and there's things happening, we can get so caught up with things that we get sucked into the anger and the emotions and all that stuff. But God's called us to a different way, a different kind of thinking. 
We're not called to be rabble-rousers with, with the gospel. We're, we're not called to start protests and riots that drag people into an assembly. Instead, we're called to lovingly and carefully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and it will be God who draws people into his assembly, the church. So don't get angry with those who are blind to the mercy and grace of God. They just don't know, and they are blind and they're rebelling against a God because that God is confronting them with their sin. Instead, allow it to generate in you a compassion for their blindness and to pray for their greatest need, being reconciled to God. Jesus wants us to be certain. He wants us to be confident. He wants us to be careful. He wants us to be compelling. See, this is the other side of the coin, isn't it? When we are being careful not to be rabble-rousers, we must also be compelling by our character, by what we say, by our lifestyle, by our words that back up what we preach. And when we fail, and we will, we must be quick to confess our sin for what it is, not excuse it. We must be quick to repent and make any reparations necessary, not to leave it hanging. We must be quick to point to Christ, who is the one who restores and forgives us because of his sacrifice on the cross. It's not something that we have done. It's only something that he does for us. So we're called to live out the gospel to a world that needs the gospel. So our words and actions and behaviors and interactions must also be compelling. What does Scripture say? They will know that we are Christ's disciples because of the love we have for one another. Yes, they will know by what we say, but they'll also know by how we live. And that living can be compelling. Fifth, Jesus wants us to be cross-cultural. The gospel, friends, is for everyone. Do you believe that? No matter what country they're from, no matter what their race is, no matter their gender, real or perceived, no matter their class, no matter what sins they're in bondage to, no matter their political positions, no matter who they are or where they are from, the gospel is for them. In other words, you don't say, well, I'm gonna, I'll share the gospel with this person. I'm going to build a relationship with this per person. I'm going to kind of try and have a gospel conversation with this person, but, but not with this person because of this. And not because of this person, because they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> God has placed you in a context to testify. And we should not be making those distinctions. Now, those distinctions might help us in how we go about it, because the gospel is going to have to get through some barriers, so to speak. But we don't withhold anything because of that. So we take the cross to the culture, and we speak, live, and model the power of the gospel, and God will draw people out of their sin to come to him by faith, believing in his gospel. And friends, with all that, the church of Jesus Christ moves on <laughs> See, this is what Paul, this is what Lucas is showing us. The, the, the word of God was spreading. But Christians are also being vindicated simply for believing the gospel and seeking to live it out. Now, friends, I, I hope that this encourages you because our lives are rather mundane, aren't they? 
We live our mundane lives. We go to work. We, you know, we, we're, we're, we're married. We have children. They go to school. We're in the ball games. We go shopping, all this kind of stuff. It seems like we're not really doing much. And we can get so easily discouraged by the stuff that we hear or we perceive is out there. But God works through simple, ordinary people who hold to Christianity 101 truths. And even those things will cause offense. But they're not angry with you. They're angry with Christ. And I always want to, if someone's angry, I always want to say, well, this is what the scriptures say. I want to make sure that they understand that they're not, they're not really angry with me. <laughs> that they're actually angry with God. Lord, help us today. As we consider what it means to be people of the way. Lord, even in your word, you tell us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. But Lord, you have shown us in your word there is another way. And that way is through your son, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Lord, as we seek to be a part of that way, as we seek to live out our, our Christianity in this world, Lord, would you give us a, a sensitivity to be aware of how the world views us and even might want to say the simple things of Christianity. And not to be shocked, not to be discouraged, but to realize, Lord, that you are working through all that in spite of that opposition. Lord, help us to stand firm and to be faithful because, Lord, we know that in heaven we are vindicated, that we're not doing anything wrong we're not being illegal. We're not causing trouble. Lord, we're just believing in the truth of your word. So Lord, help us to press on doing that. But Lord, to do it in such a way where our lives are compelling, where we can continue to testify of your good news. Now, Lord, as we close our time in the word, we, we come now to open our time as we celebrate, Lord, your elements. We're reminded, Lord, of what you have done in giving your body. You came to this earth and you took the form of man and you lived your life. You suffered. You struggled. Lord, you, you, you were hungry. You, you thirsted. Lord, you understood what it was to be human. And Lord, at the same time, you went to a cross and you died physically as that sacrifice once for all. Lord, thank you. We remember, Lord, what you have done in that. We also remember, Lord, how the shedding of blood points to the fact that there needed to be a remission of sins. There needed to be a payment for sins. And throughout the history of Israel, that was modeled for us over and over and over again. But Lord, when you came and you went to that cross, your blood was shed as that sacrifice. You bore the, the, the necessary wrath of the Father that we deserved. And Lord, you give us new life we who are dead in our transgressions and sins, Lord, you made us alive in Christ. Lord, we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for, for what you have done in your body and Lord, how you've demonstrated your love for us in what you have done in shedding your blood. May we celebrate that together, we ask in your name. Amen.